0: Welcome to CardiCast, a blend podcast brought to you by New Cardigan. In this episode, I spoke to Kim Tyree, the university librarian at the Auckland University of Technology. We discussed being Aotearoa's first Maori UL, decolonising institutions, and how to be an effective leader. I hope you enjoy the show. Kim, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Kia ora koutou katoa, hello everybody. Uh, ko Kim Tairi. tōku ingoa, here. kaitoha puka ki aranui o Tamaki Makaurau. Ko Maunu totori te mauna. ko Waikato te awa, ko Tainui te waka, ko Tainui te iwi, ko Natikoriki kahukura te hapū, ko Rāpata Tairi. Rāua, ko fakamura uh, Pitarangi, tūpuna uh, he kaito hapoka ho tamaki Makaurau. kiaara. Would you like me to translate
0: you? Yes, please. <laughs>
1: um, so what I did was I just introduced myself and as a Maori person, when we introduce ourselves, we connect ourselves by Papa or genealogy to others so I said basically my ancestors are from the Waikato which is kind of south from Auckland where I live now and that the other thing that's really important to us is our connection to the whenua or the land so I mentioned the name of our mountain our river the waka or canoe that our ancestors uh, traveled to Aotearoa on and that I am the uh, kaitoha Puka um, or university librarian at AUT.
0: Fantastic, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Kim. So as you said, uh, you are indeed the university librarian at AUT, but you weren't born as a university librarian. (laughs) Surprised me. I mean, I, th- I think you were born to be a university librarian, but you uh, didn't emerge from the womb as a, as a university librarian. So, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your career and how you came to be the university librarian at AET?
1: Like many librarians, I was actually a library monitor when I was at high school. I had a nice little badge uh, that had library monitor on it and uh, libraries have always been one of those safe places for me, but I didn't consider it as a career. I tried a few things actually, I started nursing, started an arts degree and none of those felt right. And then I had two small children. And I thought, I really need to find something to do with my life. And I stumbled across the library technician course. So the diploma in information, library and information technology. And I did that. And I found that I actually really loved it. Like it just seemed like the perfect fit, the skill set, like you get to kind of do nerdy technical things and work with people and at the beginning of my career was kind of like the internet was just really taking off so you know I used to like coding and all those exciting things and it was like the frontier we really did in libraries at that time feel like pioneers it was a great place to be so I started in a TAFE as a library technician in training and then qualified as a librarian in about 2000 and then started my career really as in the what I call the people part of the library so working uh, as a liaison librarian and I kind of did that for a while started to get interested in leadership and management and I was one of those people that you know, always had an opinion and had ideas about how things could be done better. And I thought, well, I can't just sit here and have the ideas. I want to have influence and be part of the decision making. And so I made a conscious decision to start to move into management. And that kind of led to, you know, team leader roles, eventually running campuses. And then I moved into senior leadership. And along, you know, along that journey, I had really great mentors. I'd spent a lot of time doing leadership courses. I went to Aurora. I talked to a lot of people about it because it, it is a particular kind of work when you're leading and managing teams. And, you know, one of my criticisms of the profession used to be is that we didn't actually give enough training to our managers and leaders in the profession. And thank goodness that's changed because we've become aware of how important they are to our success. So I wasn't thinking about becoming a university librarian to be honest, but what happened was an associate director role came up and I thought, I don't want anyone else to do that job. I actually want that, that job's mine. And I went in and had a conversation with the university librarian and I said, look, I know we're taking a risk, but why not? Um, Second me to the job and let's see how we do. And if I like it and you think I'm doing a good job, I'll be your associate director. You know, we had a little bit of flex to be able to do that. And then, you know, we had restructures and things and I ended up in the UL role. I mean, it was a a heady time (laughs) and an exciting time. And it's something that... I'm really proud of being a university librarian and leading libraries at this particular time in uh, history. It's an exciting time in education.
0: That is a wonderful sketch of your career, Kim. You've left lots of things out that I know about, but I won't, won't press you on that too much. You kind of touched on this, but I just want to tease out a bit more. You said you consciously you decided you wanted to move into a leadership role and you were kind of conscious about that. And I think that's something that some of our listeners might be interested in. So you spoke about seeking out mentors and training like Aurora. Is there anything else that you thought, I really, you know, I want to be a leader, so therefore I need to do this sort of thing?
1: I think it's that thing around in your early career, it's okay to take risks because it's all about, learning you're going to make lots of mistakes and I think one of the things that stops us from moving into those roles is that we're scared of making mistakes because they can be quite visible and I've made heaps of them and still continue to and that's where I get my best learning from is making kind of quite visible silly mistakes in my career I've always found that most of my mentors have been women, and that just happens to be the case. I'm really drawn to strong women who are doing kick ass jobs. And, you know, in terms of senior leadership in higher education, there are still less women in those roles. And so there's certainly a lot to learn from women who've managed to navigate their careers and to move into leadership roles. And I I think it's that thing around, I mean, we talk about it a lot, uh, particularly in Australia and here too, is that lifelong journey. There's always something to learn about leadership. I tend to cherry pick a bit in terms of leadership styles and approaches. Like I, I really connect with and the servant leadership style resonates with me because I believe that we are in service of our communities and that we, we look after our people and then our people will look after the community and so I kind of see my job as more of a like a facilitator and a conductor and you know like that's learnt and I'm always learning more about what works and what doesn't. I've only once had a, like a professional career coach, and that was quite enjoyable. And that was when I was at that AD thinking about going the next level, which some, you know, like it can seem like a huge jump for people. And I thought it might be useful to have a coach to work on some of the gaps that I saw and that they identified in my practice as a a leader. I'm also like an introvert. And so I had to practice coming across as an extrovert because, well, let's face it, extroverts are kind of a lot more bold and visible. They find that easier and people are attracted by that. And when you're in leadership roles, those things can be important particularly when you're trying to uh, influence things so there were areas that I had to really work on and that was one of them. public speaking I still absolutely I have to plan meticulously because it terrifies me still but I do it and I do it often because I know it's an important part of the role and I had to work on that being bold and visible and I think for me that that extrovert personality is really important because it helps to break down the stereotypes about the kind of people university librarians are or librarians are. So we we often within our institutes and within society get put in boxes. And I wanted to say, or hang on a minute, there is more diversity coming into the profession and we're not all this one thing. And one of the things we are working on is making the profession more diverse.
0: Almost as if you know what my next question is going to be, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> You're an Indigenous person and as a library leader, and particularly the first, as I understand it, the first Maori Katohapuka, puka, we know that Gleam institutions um, have this very bad habit of putting huge expectations on the often tiny number of Indigenous people working within them to, you know, be representative of every Indigenous person in their country who ever lived uh, and all their views and perspectives. And we also know that glam institutions can be really traumatic sites for Indigenous people often, particularly archives, but also libraries. So I'm kind of wondering, is it any easier when you're the boss?
1: In one sense, it is easier because I can represent. (laughs) You you can say that I'm holding up my fist in a black power salute, but I can can represent. Like I'm proud to say that I'm a a indigenous intersectional feminist. I, I talk about my identity quite a lot. I talk about it a lot through social media and I talk about it a lot through my work because I actually think it's important to be able to have the safety to talk about identity. And particularly when you work in, let's face it, a very white profession. And, you know, the same with our institutes in Australasia, they still remain very white. And it is helpful because it means that people expect me to have conversations around how do we indigenise spaces? How do we decolonize our collections? How do we recruit for diversity and get more indigenous people? How are we going to change our culture? How are we going to build indigenous ways of doing into our practice? How are we going to honour our Tiriti or Waitangi? All those sort of things people expect because I'm Māori. So it's it's not, I guess, unexpected that it would be part of my agenda as an Indigenous person. But the thing that is really great about where I work is that I'm not doing that alone. When I worked in Australia, and I did so for 20 years, I didn't talk a lot about my indigeneity because that was because of my respect for the Indigenous peoples of Australia who have their own journeys around this and their cultural institutions. My role was to tautoko or support their journey, not make it about me. So it was about because I'm in, I was on stolen, never ceded land that belonged to somebody else. But since I've come back to Aotearoa, uh, I've been able to go on my own decolonization journey as a person who works in a library and in a university because I have people around me to share that journey with me and it's our journey and I'm not alone. So it's, it's a collective thing. And I've never in my life had that. So in Australia, because I was so far away, And even growing up here in Aotearoa, I grew up, in, and sometimes it's very facetious of me. I call it the deep south, but you know there were only three Maori families in my in my high school. You know, like it was a very white place to grow up in. And my parents separated when I was quite small. So my dad's Maori, and my mother is Pakeha or non-Maori. She's white from Scottish English uh, ancestry. And so I wasn't brought up in the culture, although I was taken back to meet dad's family on the marae and I had some experience of it. But I think the thing about being indigenous and working as a librarian or in the glam sector is that everybody's on their own journey so some of us have been brought up totally immersed in the culture. Some of us are just reconnecting with it and are dealing with, but all of us are dealing with intergenerational trauma from what's happened to you know, our families and the history of colonization in New Zealand and Australia. So it's a lot. And sometimes we wanna talk about it and sometimes we don't. It's a lot to ask to give the people that are in your workplaces that are indigenous whose role may not be a named indigenous role where they're working on transformational culture change you know to load to have that cultural load on them to be the voice of the people and it's really not the way we work particularly for Maori we work at it collectively so i can't represent other people Not without their permission and not with them either literally or figuratively standing beside me. And that's very much the way we make decisions. So it's still complex. And because I'm, you know, like I'm five years into this journey, which I started like decades ago, but left in terms of my own reconnection with culture. You know, I'm learning all the time, but it's a journey that I'm really fortunate that, that we've got um, 8% of our staff, which isn't a lot in the library are actually Māori. You know, there's an amazing breadth of knowledge and experience and I learn off those people. I'm really fortunate that within the university and the broader university, there are amazing people who I can learn from. Uh, and the thing is that you know we operate by reciprocity so in terms of what we take from each other as Indigenous people we we need to give back we need to give back to the community and so one of the things that you'll find is it can be quite difficult for Indigenous colleagues to say no so if you ask them It's very hard for them to push back and say, no, I'm not going to do that. So we need to be really mindful of that. And also, if you've got a program of culture change in your library around building cultural capacity and safety or competency or capability, whatever you call it in your organization, then you need to have a support infrastructure around those people it's not fair to just have one person being responsible for that change in your division, particularly because that's not the way we want to operate. We want to operate collectively and involve everybody. It's big. It's so big, Hugh. um, And I feel that, but I know that I'm not on this journey alone and that I'm surrounded by people that want all of us to succeed. The thing about this work and being Indigenous and trying to indigenize your libraries is that by doing that, you can enhance the kind of mana, the, the self-esteem, the authority, the autonomy, the connection of not only the Indigenous people, but everyone around you. It's mana enhancing work. So even when it does get hard for people, that's what I keep coming back. It's about lifting up everybody's voices.
0: Thank you, what an excellent answer. What I'm hearing is it probably doesn't make it any easier for you, but but, um, it must be rewarding and kind of exciting for your team and your staff, I think, to have have a leader who's thinking about all these things and understands what, what are the things that you need to consider.
1: I mean, I think one of the hardest things is that, you know, for a lot of our institutions recently, We're producing frameworks, cultural frameworks and and looking at how to build capacity in our organizations, but taking that rhetoric and that good intention off the page and making it real and action like that's the hard bit. And so I've been talking to people recently, uh, particularly since the call indigenous forum that was held recently around how we support one another in that work. I mean, we're really fortunate that we've got fantastic researchers and academics in this space. So Kirsten Thorpe, her work is just amazing. Spencer Lilly at Victoria University. You know, there is starting to build this body of knowledge around glam sectors in particular, and how we can address this. And look, and I think back to the amazing work that Molly Joseph and her team were doing at um, the State Library of New South Wales with Aboriginal communities, where it's about true partnership. So we are starting to build up some momentum. But you know, the time has passed where we just write these frameworks and kind of shelve them. We, we really need to do something differently and I think the best way to do that is to employ more Indigenous people in our institutes (laughs) so that's something that I'm really keen to look at how we can do and support across the sector because it's really hard and it's not about more librarians necessary it's about more diversity and you know recognizing that librarians need to interdisciplinary we need to work with different people they don't necessarily have to be librarians who work in their libraries there's kind of space for all sorts of people we need to work differently we need to challenge our own way of working and even you know break it look who says the way that we do things currently is the best way because I don't know that
0: it always is no definitely not so yeah more more diversity across as you say intersectionally multiple kind of layers there and I mean you know my two cents on this is from my very you know my settler perspective I think it would be better for everybody if we if we kind of decolonize and indigenize our glam institutions I would feel you know much happier about what I'm doing in my own institution if if I could be part of that so everybody's got a part to play there
1: and thanks. That. I mean, that's one of the most important things that you. It like it's a journey that we're on together. It's not something that you can stand back and say, "Well, you know, they."
0: Yeah, we'll leave, do we'll it leave or, this up to them, and then they can tell us when it's yeah. finished. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the whole problem in the first place. It?
1: <laughs> yeah, and like these things take time. So the way the way a lot of indigenous communities work is. It's about building relationships first, and then you do the work together. So there is a lot of conversation, a lot of talking, a lot of trying to understand one another, a lot of manakitanga. Men- so building shared experiences before you can even actually start the work. So it means that when you want to indigenize and decolonize, it means actually working differently. And we need to, uh, recognize that we have an opportunity to enhance the way we do things by looking at indigenous ways of working and how we can use those in our workplaces.
0: So indigenous ways of working for everybody, not just yeah, indigenous people.
1: Yes <laughs> for indigenous people right.
0: Sounds great to me. So we're talking about different ways of working. I want to just uh, slightly change tack here, but in line with that, I was very excited to see a few months ago, it was now I think, AUT and Catalyst IT announced that you're moving to the open source library management system, Koha ILS. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that decision and what you're hoping to do with a open source library management system, which was created in our Torah.
1: Wow. I mean, we're really excited too. I mean, one of the things about our our direction, I guess, as a library is the openness is like a fundamental and key thing to us. And it's, it's not just open access, it's open education, open scholarship, open research, open source. So with TwoFedder, which is our open research at AUT, we've been using an open source platform. So we use uh, AGS, and um, that's been really fantastic. And the team that works in that space, so our repository space, um, our uh, open source, our system space, are some of the, I guess, the most progressive and forward-thinking people in the region in open source and open access. So that's Lutman Hayes and Donna Coventry and Rudy Mali and Craig Murdoch and others at AUT who are award-winning for their two feder platform which shares AUT research with the world. And so with their work and their values we'd taken that as far as it could go and we thought the next logical step was to look at our integrated library management system we were like AET was ready to go open source last time we were in the market for a integrated library management system but the rest of the world wasn't quite ready for it yet <laughs> <laughs> as in our community. But we're really fortunate that we've got a fantastic team in our ICT department who are totally on board with this as well. And we've got a fantastic developer, um, Pia Shin. We were ready for that. And I'm going to quote Craig Murdoch because he talks about the why for koha. And the essence of it is around being part of a community that has kind of agency over the systems and the data in a way that perhaps we don't have with some of the other integrated library management systems out there. It's a different kind of relationship because it is open source. And and this is what Craig has to say. Adopting Koha allows us to continue our progress in open source This drives increased flexibility and control over our own destiny. Isn't that wonderful? Our destiny. love it. Um, Open source software allows people to take ownership. That's really important to us too. The move to Koha will mean increased capacity, capability and satisfaction for our staff because we can change things when we need to. We can customize. We don't have to wait to be in a very long queue where our where our request to change things never gets to the top. We get to work directly with a huge global community of libraries, librarians and developers, and, and prove and extend koha. So it, it's that thing about reciprocity. It's not only do we get something fantastic out of it, we're part of giving something fantastic to the community. And one of the great things about Koha is it's huge in developing countries. So, you know, spreading the capability of managing information and sharing information and disseminating information to places that don't have those systems like that. It's fabulous to be part of something like that. So a lot of the decision was values-based around open source and we're really uh, excited about that. Also, it saved us money.
0: (laughs) Where's the budget bottom line? Values and and value.
1: (laughs) Values and values. You know, really great support in country, you know, just down the road and saved a heap of money. So it was very easy to convince the finance admin people in the university that it was a good deal. And, you know, just having, for me, it's really that stuff around we can make things better for not only our own community, but, the you know, a global community by being part of this and having uh, koha.
0: So I was wrong, that actually wasn't a totally different conversation at all. That sounds like it's very much in line with what you were talking about earlier about, you know, forming community and reciprocal uh, relationships and uh, going boldly into the future together.
1: Yeah, I mean, values are really important in in our sector, I think. Hmm. And a lot of people come into the job with really strong values about being part of community and sharing and, you know, providing access and, you know, books are lovely things. And so it's nice to be able to make decisions that are based on values and good business sense. So it's, you know, like often the two don't go together, like you, you pay less and you don't get a quality kind of outcome. And uh, in this uh, example, we get both, which is great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you pay more and you still don't get the quality <laughs> outcome you're looking for or the flexibility, but uh, let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> so Kim, we're, we're nearly at the end of our time for this conversation, but I did want to ask you a couple more questions. I but short. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't be sorry at all. This is all fascinating. So you've talked a little bit about your leadership style of servant leadership, and you also talked a little bit about, and this is something that for people who've met you, particularly perhaps in the last few years rather than 20 years ago, they might have been quite surprised to hear you say that you're an introvert. You've dispensed quite a bit of excellent advice uh, (laughs) over the years about finding your own professional brand and kind of, you know, forming a professional identity and I'm just wondering if you have any if you can distill your best tips uh, for our listeners around that.
1: I mean I guess for me particularly in a leadership role I've just owned the fact that you need to be bold and visible and I think it's important for us as a profession that we are much more visible and I guess, influential in the decision-making. I think that's fundamental to the way we need to operate in the modern world because it's just so competitive. So we've got to be seen. Look, I I really think in terms of personal branding, it really helped me. I don't like the words personal branding, but it's a a shortcut um, to describing this kind of work. It was really, really important to me when I was progressing through my career to work out where I wanted to be and kind of know my why. And that that has evolved over years. So, you know, like the things that are really important to me now are sort of the stuff around um, digitizing uh, our sector and that goes in hand in hand with the openness conversation. And then there's, you know, some really important stuff in there around what is the academic library for the world now that COVID is in it and what does that mean for the kind of uh, way we connect with our community and they connect with our services. And so your why will change and evolve, but it's I, I think reflective, reflexive practice is really important in your career. So, you know, you, you may be one of those people that set goals, but even if they're kind of just ideas, it's good to revisit them. And you may need to like press the reset button occasionally, know your why, but also revisit them, review them semi-regularly to make sure that you're kind of heading in the direction or, you know, if you need to go a different way to get to where you want to be, you can uh, make those adjustments for yourself. I still choose to operate in social media and those other things. And I've been bitten a few times just because... I've said things personally or done things as Kim, the non-work person, that has impacted on Kim, the professional person. And, you know, because I am visible and then if people think it's inappropriate because I'm I'm a a senior leader uh, in my organisation, they will say so. And then that sort of stuff comes back to me. And you've got to recognise that when you're operating visibly and publicly and people know about where you work, that you've got to be mindful about how you operate. I really think of social media as performative spaces. So, you know, how I talked about being extroverted, I'm definitely taller and much more extroverted and (laughs) way more fashionable and good looking (laughs) on social media than I am in real life. (laughs) So I play up on that in Aotearoa um, because we're so small as a country and it's like you feel like you're only two or three degrees from anybody I'm quite out there in that space and I love it because I've carefully curated it but also curated my followers and the kind of interactions that I have so I tend to be you know positive upbeat and people are quite responsive to that and I like I like to look on the bright side of life because there are a lot of people whose role in society is the critical conscience and they do that really well and they do that from a space where they're informed and they're knowledgeable and it's evidence-based and I don't need to do that. If they're doing that well, I can lift them up and lift their voices and share them rather than trying to operate in that space. So you you don't need to be all things to all people. Kind of choose your lane and see how that works for you. And I've kind of chosen, look at me, my outfit looks good. And did you know about Open Access Week? You know, that's that sort of thing. And it works. And I've had lots of opportunities because of that. And then I guess you've got to actively manage Um, I talked about curation like it, it may seem slightly you know manipulative to curate everything but when you're in opened public spaces you do need to be mindful of that and how you operate now I know a lot of people who were very active in social media 10 years ago and have chosen you know that's not their thing, and they are in spaces where they get the kind of engagement that they want. I'm fortunate that I still get the kind of engagement that I want, but, you know, I've almost stopped looking for the next thing, but I'm always hopeful that there are platforms that are not run by big global conglomerates that make lots and lots of money and use our data for nefarious purposes. I'm always hopeful that that's a thing, that there will be alternatives where you can get the same level engagement but there's much more safety and diversity and I look for those spaces but they haven't kind of eventuated for me yet but what still happens is that thing around find your people find your communities of practice find your personal learning networks and then your brand will just kind of happen because you'll be associated with all these really cool amazing people and that's kind of what I do it's kind of like I just Piggyback along on these amazing people that I share my world with. They do all the awesome stuff, and I just go, Look at them. And then people think I'm wonderful by association.
0: <laughs> it was ah. just let you into our secret. Um, this is why we <laughs> invited her onto the podcast so that New Cardigan can look more impressive by associating ourselves with Kim Tyrone.
1: Oh, well, me associating myself with you. Like, I remember being around at the first meeting. So, like, it's so awesome to see that what New Cardigan has evolved into. And, I, you know, like, it's nice to have diverse and alternative voices in our sector. And that's what New Cardigan is. So you should be really proud of the space that you continue to hold. And, you know, we need more of it.
0: Well, thank you. That's very kind. It's uh, certainly <laughs> what we're trying to do, and it's been a little bit difficult in recent times with our COVID situation, but we're doing our best. Well, look, Kim, you're a very busy university librarian, so I probably shouldn't take up any more of your time, but thank you so much for joining us on Cardicast.
1: Yes, thank you. Namahi nui ki katoa. Thank you very much for having me. I um, feel privileged to be uh, one of the Castees.
0: Is that a thing? <laughs> it is. It is now. The, you are. You're part of the Cardicast. <laughs> that was Kim Tyree, university librarian at AUT, speaking to me, Hugh Rundle. Thanks for listening, folks. If you'd like to get in touch with New Cardigan, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or at our website, NewCardigan.org. We hope you've enjoyed the episode. Please remember to keep an ear out for more CardiCasts. Check out our website for events merchandise news and more and remember folks j f d i